At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the Song of Solomon, chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let's give careful attention now to the Word of God beginning in verse 1. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking God's help and blessing, let's focus our attention upon verse 2 from the passage that we just read. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, and verse 2. Like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Last Lord's Day, we had the great privilege of gathering together in the house of God, not only worshiping through the ordinances that we enjoy week by week, but also gathering in the Lord's Day evening service around the table of the Lord and renewing covenant at the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And in connection with that, In preparation for that, earlier in that service, we renewed our covenant vows of communicant membership and for many of us, our covenant of baptism that we made at the baptism of our children. And we reflected in the morning service last Sabbath on verse 1 where Jesus says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. And then in the evening, we took up verse 2 looking at the Lord Jesus Christ as He depicts for us His bride, the church, and in a sense, each believer. Like a lily among thorns, so is my love, that is, so is my beloved one among the daughters. And here we see something of the connection between Christ and His church. Uh, We see uh, a striking resemblance between the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the lily of the valleys, and His church, His bride, His beloved, whom He describes as like a lily among thorns. We saw that the vital essence of this relationship between Christ and His bride is that of love. He calls her my love. And one of the expressions of His love is to conform her to His own image and likeness. And that takes place in this life through regeneration, made a new creature in Christ. That takes place 
at our death as believers when our soul is made perfect in holiness and enters into glory. And that takes place at the last day when the Lord returns in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. And He raises us up with bodies that are conformed to His likeness. We know not what we shall be, John says, but we know that we shall be like Him. And so in this striking resemblance, we see something of what it means to be converted, to be made a a new creature in Christ after His image and after the image of God in righteousness and true holiness. We see something of what it means to be sanctified day by day, conformed as God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And of course, the next verse in Romans 8 says that the purpose is that we would be conformed to Christ, our elder brother. And so that striking resemblance develops until it eventually uh, reaches its, its consummation at our death and eventually at the last day when we shall be uh, lilies. And, and throughout this book, it says that He feeds among the lilies. Christ loves to commune with His people as He's conforming them to Himself day by day. The striking resemblance. We also saw this visible contrast between Christ's church and the world that surrounds it. The church is a lily among thorns. It's among the thorns. He hasn't taken His church out of the world. He intercedes for them as the great high priest in John 17. But He makes it clear that they are in the world. Not of the world, but in the world. Among the world. A lily among thorns. And we saw that it's a visible contrast. That the difference between a thorn and a lily is obvious. If you look, uh, I mean, in some sense you don't even have to look closely, but if you look closely, it's all the more striking. There's a visible contrast. Even as the Bible describes the difference between an unbeliever and a believer in terms of life and death, light and darkness, the power of God, the power of Satan, righteousness and unrighteousness, uh, there is something of a visible contrast, ordinarily speaking. Okay, we understand that, uh, you know, we could go to the pastoral epistles and there are some difficult cases. It's not as though you can just automatically see a glow in somebody's face and know that they're regenerate. But in terms of the believer, there is to be something of a contrast between their attitude and their words and their actions compared to the world around them. That's just generally, ordinarily the case. And in terms of the contrast, the believer is as a lily. There's a a, a purity. The Scripture speaks of the Lord Jesus as holy, harmless, undefiled. And 1 John says in chapter 3, when it speaks of us being like Him at the last day, resurrected with Him, it also says that even now, that those who are believers purify themselves even as He is pure. And so the believer is not a thorn, not a sharp, cutting, hurtful, piercing individual, not a thorn or a thistle, but rather holy, harmless, loving, gracious, humble in confessing when we're not loving and gracious. There's a visible contrast here between the lily and the thorn. We also heard a word of comfort The Lord Jesus Christ looks at His church and looks at each believer and it is Christ that is our source of assurance. 
and, and he does that first and foremost through his promises that he reveals in the Word of God, and we look to the cross and the empty tomb and the promises of Christ, and through those things he speaks words of assurance, but also when he lays out the marks of grace. For instance, in 1 John, we know we've passed from death to life because of fill in the blank. It gives a number of the characteristics of a true believer. And as we read that, meditate on it, and with God's help, we examine ourselves, the Lord uses that to speak words of comfort, to say to our soul, Psalm 35.3, I am your salvation. And so we need to hear it. We need to hear it from Christ. Sometimes we don't see the contrast. We're overwhelmed and burdened with sin, but He brings words of assurance in His perfect timing to encourage us as we labor in the means of grace to find that assurance. And we even see that at times the the Holy Spirit as a spirit of adoption uses the Word, uses the promises, uses the means of grace at times in an unpredictable way to reassure us, to testify with our spirit that we are the children of God. Mystical in a way, but not mysticism because it's grounded in the Word itself. And so we found that as a word of comfort. We also noticed a vicious conflict that the lily is among thorns. Even as we gather at the table of the Lord as a table in the midst of our enemies, Psalm 23, there's a vicious conflict. Thorns and thistles represent the fall of man and the fall of the creation in Genesis 3.18. The, the Canaanite Gentile tribes in the law of Moses were a thorn in the side of God's people. And so the fallen world around us is against us. The sinful flesh that is within us, even as believers remaining within us, Mark 4.19 says that our sinful desires, the distracting cares of this life by which our lust for earthly things choke out the Word. He says it's like thorns choking out a plant. And Satan's devices, when we encounter thorns in the flesh, Satan, the messenger of Satan that confronted Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, and and made that thorn dig deeper into his flesh and sought to tempt him in various ways and he cried out to the Lord for deliverance. So we've seen these things, but we need to continue on in mining out this verse for all that it has for us. And so the next thing I want us to take up is this element of personal responsibility that is involved for every lily in the midst of thorns. We can speak about the vicious conflict, but at times, as believers, we can fall into the mistaken, really fall into a a big mistake of overestimating the spiritual opposition against us, overestimating our ability to make choices that can vastly impact the experience and circumstance of our Christian lives. We can just sit around and say, well, I'm a lily among thorns and I've got the world, the flesh, and the devil against me and I have these besetting sins and I just keep falling into them one after the other. Poor old me, there's no hope. Uh, I'm just going to camp out in Romans chapter 7. I want to do the right thing, but I don't. And well, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Here I am being choked 
the life out of me by these thorns and cares of this life and the devil's having a field day and the world's a thorn in my side and woe is me. And, and we need to be careful about that kind of thinking because the Scripture presents God's people as a lily among thorns, but, but we're not completely passive in terms of impacting the circumstances around us. Just think of the Lord's Prayer for a moment. Jesus says that we ought to pray in this manner. Then He goes on to say that not only do we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, but we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So there are two aspects to that prayer. Deliver us from evil, the second part, that's obvious. So when we, when we fall into temptation, Lord, help us to overcome it. But there's also the prayer, lead us not into temptation. Now, assuming that Jesus didn't command us to pray these things or pray in this manner for no purpose, this has an impact on our circumstances. We have not because we ask not. If we're not praying, lead me not into temptation, and we find ourselves constantly being tempted, then do the math, right? There are things that we need to be doing spiritually in terms of taking personal responsibility, prayer would be one of them, that can vastly impact the circumstances of our Christian life, that can make a big difference in terms of what types of thorns we are among and how powerful they are to choke us versus uh, us being able to grow and thrive in their midst. And so if we're not praying daily against those besetting sins, saying, Lord, keep me out of this situation of temptation, and if I'm just have no ability to extricate myself, and there I am, Joseph in Potiphar's house, and there's no way to get away from the temptation. Every single day, that uh, Potiphar's wife is confronting Joseph. Lord, if I can't be removed from the temptation, then deliver me from it. Deliver me from evil. Give me victory over it. If we're not regular in our prayer life in that respect, then what do, we, what do we think is going to happen? Satan's going to have a field day. The, the thorns are going to choke us half to death. And the world is going to have the victory in, in some sense. So we, we need personal responsibility. That's just one example. But listen to the way the Proverbs present these principles of personal responsibility. Proverbs 15, verse 19. The way of the lazy man is like a hedge of thorns, but the way of the upright is a highway. In other words, if you're spiritually lazy, you're going to create obstacles that weren't there in the first place. Your path is going to be hedged up by thorns. There are going to be all kinds of hindrances in your Christian walk that don't need to be there. I mean, it's bad enough that you're in the world, as Jesus says. It's bad enough that the world, the flesh, and the devil have it in for you, but you're actually giving the devil a foothold. You're actually almost encouraging by your negligence these thorns to to grow up as a hedge in your way and in your path. Listen to Proverbs 24, verse 30. I think this says it all. This is Solomon. He also wrote the Song of Solomon, obviously. Same author. I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns. 
Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Now that has respect to a lack of diligence in temporal matters, right? Your, your daily work, six days a week. We could talk about that financially and, and in terms of providing for, for your family. But spiritually speaking, it applies directly. The field of the lazy man, the Christian life of the lazy man. We hate to even speak of the lazy Christian, but we all fall into sin, and this is a big one. It's very common for professing Christians to fall into spiritual laziness. And what happens? Our field is overgrown with thorns. Now, the right response when our field is overgrown with thorns and they're choking us and it's difficult and we've surrounded ourselves with all of these elements that are so not conducive to our spiritual growth, the right response would be to humble ourselves and admit we have let the world, flesh, and the devil into our lives. We've been negligent spiritually. We haven't been in the Word of God. We haven't been plowing up our fallow ground. We haven't been reading the Scriptures and praying and so on. We haven't been faithful in these things. We haven't been preparing ourselves for public worship and thinking about God as we come in and and preparing to hear the Word of God and diligently receiving it and so on and so forth. We haven't been doing that. And we should attribute the infestation of thorns to that. And we should attribute our anemic spiritual condition, maybe our lack of assurance, certainly our failure to combat sin successfully, we should attribute it to that. But we don't. We don't. Instead, we say, wow, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Oh, so powerful. Look at the world today. My friends, if the church... And we include ourselves here. If the church was not full of people like us, we need to grow in these areas. But if if the church wasn't filled with laziness, the world would not be having a field day. The thorns in our society would not be what they are today. And individually, if we were pursuing the means of grace and we were imbibing the Spirit of God through His Word and prayer and Christian fellowship and all of these ordinances if we were doing that and we were diligent, as diligent in our spiritual life as we are in terms of our physical life, uh, our financial life, our educational life, if we were diligent, my friends, the thorns and thistles would not be in any wise as influential as they are. And if we have a besetting sin and we feel like we're just falling into it again and again and again, is it the case that we haven't been regular in the means of grace? Is it the case that we haven't been in the Bible? We haven't been praying? And if it is the case, that's the reason, right? I mean, if you bought a car from a used car dealership and you come to church, you're saying, oh, I got this car and it keeps breaking down. I've had it for, uh, you know, a couple years now and I've just had nothing but problems, right? And then you share that with me and I say, oh, yeah, I feel so sorry for you. But you share it with one of our elders who knows something about cars and they say, well, have you been, uh, have you had the oil changed regularly? Have you been taking care of it? Have you done this, that, and the other? Oh, no, I haven't done any of that. Okay, well, then forget about the used car dealership. Forget about all the other circumstances. 
if you haven't been changing the oil, if you haven't been doing the basic matters of upkeep for the vehicle, that's the reason. Forget about all the other explanations. It's the laziness in those basic matters of upkeep. And in our spiritual lives, that has to be our method of diagnosing the problem. The thorns are running wild. Well, have we been breaking up the fallow ground day by day through the Word and prayer? Have we been utilizing public worship, public preaching, uh, the sacraments? Have we been preparing for the Lord's Supper? Have we been fasting and praying and participating in the covenant renewal to our growth in grace? I'm not saying these things are automatic, but I'm saying any more than, you know, if you change your oil, your car's going to work perfectly. Some of us know that's not always the case. But, but, okay, if you're not changing the oil, that's the problem. Nine times out of ten. And if you're not using the means of grace diligently, then that's the problem. Nine times out of ten. Whatever your besetting sin may be. So personal responsibility. How many of the thorns in your life are the result of spiritual negligence? Look at uh, Val 5. You can see it on the inside cover of your psalm book. Obviously, this is part of a sermon that was meant to be preached in connection with our covenant renewal. But Val 5 of our covenant of communicant membership says this, To the end that you may grow in the Christian life, do you promise that you will diligently read the Bible, engage in private prayer, keep the Lord's Day, regularly attend the worship services, observe the appointed sacraments, and give to the Lord's work as He shall prosper you. So that's a short list of the means of grace. This is the way that we grow. This is the way that our faith grows. This is the way that our repentance grows. This is the way that we become empowered, clothed in the armor of God to kill sin, to overcome temptation. These are the basics. If we're not doing this, we can't expect to have success in the Christian life. And if we're complaining about our lack of success in the Christian life and not getting back to this, uh, it's a sad situation. And we need to be reminded, get back to the means of grace. The same thing could be said of raising our children. Okay? Uh, we have a covenant of baptism. Unfortunately, it's not on the inside of the Psalter. But our covenant of baptism speaks about our responsibility to train up our children through a godly example, discipline exercised in love, teaching them, training them to read the Bible and, and value the membership of the church, so on and so forth. Bringing up our children, daily family worship, all of these things. Now, it may be the case that somebody does all those things and their children go astray. That happens. We could look at examples in the Bible where godly men produced at least some children that went astray. And there's no indication in the text that there was any negligence. But if it's the case that a child goes astray, and we go down, again, we don't have it in front of us, but we go down the list of vows in the covenant of baptism, for instance, as a short list of biblical parental responsibilities, and we find that time and time again, you go through one one of the points, another point, another point, and one after the other, the, the parents have not been doing those things. Okay, we need to be able to do the math. It's not uncharitable to say if you haven't put in the effort 
and use the means God gives us for the conversion of our children, you should not expect to have your children converted. It doesn't mean that faithfully parenting your children automatically saves them. But, I mean, there's a cause and effect. We need to be able to do the math. God has given us the Scriptures and given us the covenant of grace so that it would make sense. And it does make sense. And if you put in the effort, generally you're going to see the result. And if you don't, generally you're not going to see the result. And so we need to cultivate personal responsibility. Not when our children go astray because we were negligent and and it's established that we were negligent, blaming the world. Oh, well, the world. Look at the world. My, My child went off into the world. Or my child's overwhelmed with sinful flesh and, and lust. Uh, or, or Satan has taken hold. No, no. We've got three fingers pointing back at ourselves. So we need to take personal responsibility. We have a great... Uh, we should have a great optimism about our ability to make a difference in the circumstances of our Christian life. Now, in addition to that... Let's not forget that even with everything that we may do, even if we are faithful to a significant degree in all of these biblical responsibilities, by the grace of God, we're diligent in the means of grace for ourselves, for our family, for our children. Nevertheless, we have a natural weakness and vulnerability in the Christian life. The Lord Jesus says, like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. So even if you, by your negligence, aren't multiplying the thorns, the thorns are still going to be there. And you're still going to be among them. And thorns are sharp and threatening. And they can choke the life out of a plant. And a lily is weak and delicate. And notice here, There's only one lily, but there are many thorns. So the church and even the believer here is presented in this world as being weak, vulnerable, delicate, and outnumbered. A lily among thorns. Sheep among wolves, Jesus says. He sends out His apostles as sheep among wolves. Think of David versus Goliath. David who tries on Saul's armor and and says, well, I don't really know how to use this stuff, so he puts it aside, and he goes out with his sling and his stones, and he faces the giant, and Goliath is mocking him at how vulnerable and weak and short and small and puny that he is. You know, do you you think that I'm a dog where you send out this little boy with with a stick in his hand? Think of David versus Goliath in many respects outwardly was weak, delicate, and the church we know in this world is heavily outnumbered. So, in addition to having optimism about our personal responsibility, let's have humility about our natural vulnerability and weakness. Notice the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 12. After having seen a number of visions and revelations, even being taken to the third heaven, whether in the Spirit, he doesn't know, or whether in the body or in the Spirit, he's not sure exactly the mechanics of it, but, but he says God knows, and, and, and Paul was caught up to the third heaven. But in order to keep him from boasting, 
The Lord subjected him to infirmities, weakness, a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was painful, it was difficult. Picking up in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12, it says, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So we know Satan's involved. Maybe his sinful flesh is involved. Maybe there's a besetting sin. Uh, Maybe the world is involved. We don't know, but probably the world, the flesh, and the devil are not too distant from this thorn in the flesh. And God sends it to him for a purpose that he might avoid the great destructive sin of pride. And so God sends this to humble him. And concerning this thing, he says, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Notice what the Lord is saying to Paul. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So the more weak you are, the weaker you are, the more delicate you are, the more naturally vulnerable that you are, the the more outnumbered that you are, like Gideon and his 300 men, the, the more that you are outnumbered and outmatched and overmatched by the world, the flesh, and the devil, the more my strength is perfected. Because the more you depend on me, and by faith, the greater strength that you have from me. And when the victory is won, and when you're given the ability to endure affliction and give praise to God, and you're able to conquer that affliction and turn it into something that humbles you and makes you more like Christ... He says, when, when you're able to boast in your affirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon you, he says, he says, that's what I'm talking about. That strength is made perfect. That power of Christ rests upon you in your greatest weakness, in your greatest vulnerability. So it's not something we need to be afraid of. It's something we need to embrace. Yes, be personally responsible and seek to minimize the thorns in your life, but recognize no matter how successful you are, you will always find yourself in very difficult situations. You will always find yourself weak and depending upon God. You will always find yourself, at least in our day, outnumbered by the world. And you need to embrace that And you need to call upon the name of the Lord. It doesn't say He took the thorn away. And it doesn't, nowhere in the Bible does it promise that God will remove the source of the angst and the pain and the trial in your life. But it does promise that in your weakness, if you look to Him, the power of Christ will rest upon you. And the power of Christ, my friends, is infinite. The power of Christ can sustain you, can strengthen you. As I said, Paul was so filled with the power of Christ, he was able to rejoice and boast in his infirmities because of the power of Christ that flowed through his soul. So yes, natural weakness and vulnerability. And yet, uh, finally, supernatural and triumphant endurance. This flows in very well to our final point. Supernatural and triumphant 
endurance. When the bridegroom says, like a lily among thorns, so is my beloved among the daughters, that is not a eulogy. That is not the Lord Jesus speaking of His church. Well, you know, like a lily among thorns, she held out as long as she could. It's not a eulogy. She didn't fail. She didn't die. The gates of hell did not prevail against her. My friends, we are more than conquerors. Whether it's the world, whether it's the flesh, whether it's the devil, we win. We conquer. We are more than conquerors. And how is it that we are able to endure and even boast in our affliction? How is it that we're able to remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? How is it that we're able to kill sin so that we can be characterized by a besetting sin, but over time we can be rid of the practice of that sin? And the temptation toward it can be greatly minimized in our lives. Okay? There are people who were known for their anger that are meek and gentle. There are people that were known for their sexual immorality that are sexually pure. There are people that have been, newsflash, made a new creature in Christ. That's real. And the Lord Jesus, if you will, has made us, has taken us from being thorns to being lilies. I know that's not in the text, but, but you, you get the point. We're new creatures in Christ and we are more than conquerors. Such that in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says that all of these things that might frighten us, all of these things we might think, well, well, this is going to do me in. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. And these are substantial things. Let's not minimize these. You know, oh, here we are in a nice comfortable room and Oh, well, I'm not so worried about tribulation or distress. These are big deals, right? If anything on this list came into our experience, it would, it would be significant. It would be off the charts, okay? And Paul endured many of these types of things, and so did the, the members of the early church, many of them. But he's saying none of these things can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. In fact... Verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In all these things. Through all these things. All these things in context, Paul's saying, they're worked together for our good. They strengthen our faith. In fact, they're an integral part of our victory in that we endure them and we're made more like Christ who endured affliction and who endured many of these types of things. And so in these things, we're not always delivered from them. We're delivered in them. We have victory and conquest over them by enduring in the midst of these things. God didn't remove Paul's thorn in the flesh. At least as far as we know in that text, God gave him victory in it and over it as he endured through it. Now, how do we endure? Well, we endure through Christ. We endure through Christ. Christ. Christ has endured. And now Christ who lives inside of us enables us to endure. You see this in Psalm 118. This would have been a psalm that Jesus and His disciples would have sung on the night that He was betrayed, the night that they ate what's often called the Last Supper or the first sacrament of the Lord's Supper. 
Psalm 118 would have been on their lips as Jesus went to conquer sin, to conquer death, to endure the cross, despising the shame. This is what was on His lips. Psalm 118 verse 5, I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. Now we did hear in the psalm meditation, Jesus did fear God and cried out with loud groans. These things are compatible, okay? But what it's saying is that his faith triumphed as he contemplated that, yes, God is for me. The Lord is on my side. He's going to raise me from the dead. What can man do to me? He can crucify me, but ultimately, he knows that death can't hold him. The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on all those who hate me. He says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Now listen, here's Christ the lily surrounded by thorns. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They surrounded me, yes they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees, they were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Lily among thorns, the thorns are going to pierce him, the crown of thorns. He says, by the end of it, it will be a fire of thorns. I will have victory over my enemies, though they surrounded me like bees. They surrounded me, but I will destroy them, he says. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord, this is key, the Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. And and because of this, the voice of God's people, we're told in this psalm, the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous, and rightly so. We celebrate Christ's victory. We rejoice in His resurrection. And in his triumph over sin and Satan and death. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. So on and so forth. It's it's a beautiful psalm. But this is what was on the mind and on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he conquered when He endured, when He overcame something that we could never even comprehend, the infinite wrath of God poured out upon Him. I wonder if we could even comprehend the physical pain of the cross. Probably none of us can relate to anything like that even. But this was what was on His heart. Triumphing over these thorns and bees and these enemies that sought to pierce Him and strike Him. They surrounded Him. But my friends, this is a psalm that's been given to us as believers. This is a psalm that ought to be in our minds and on our lips when we confront our foe. When we're preparing to face off against the temptations that so easily entangle us. When we're facing off against the world with its flatteries and with its intimidation. 
when we're facing off against sinful desires that have run wild in our lives and we need to break up the fallow ground and dig out the thorns and pull them out. And, and, and when we face this battle, we need to take these words upon our lips. Because Jesus Christ lives inside of us. We must stress that point. And so we can say, yes, they surrounded me. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. This needs to be, if you're battling a lifestyle dominating sin in your life right now, this is a psalm to memorize. This is a psalm to to put upon your lips. I feel surrounded. I feel overwhelmed. I'm a lily among thorns. But guess what? I will destroy them in the name of the Lord. I will destroy them. That's the victory we have through Christ. And that's the victory that He accomplishes in us by His Holy Spirit. It needs to be aggressive. It needs to be militaristic. It needs, it, we need to have this mentality. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. But it's more than just the Lord Jesus Christ considered in Himself. It's His love. It's His love. Like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Why is it that the believer can have the utmost assurance and confidence when combating the world, the flesh, and the devil? And we're speaking here individually. We could apply this corporately to the advance of the kingdom of God on earth, but we're still focusing, uh, focusing our attention individually here. Why is it that you can have that confidence that you are more than a conqueror? Or as Paul says in Romans 8, literally in the Greek, that you are a super conqueror. How can you know that? Well, it's through Christ, but it's specifically through Christ's love. Notice he says that that she's a lily among the thorns and he calls her my love. That is the source of our victory. That is the heart and soul of Romans chapter 8. You say, how do we get out of Romans chapter 7 where we're doing things we know we shouldn't be doing and where we're neglecting things we know we should be doing? We're experiencing what the lazy man experienced. The thorns are running wild again. We see our sin. We're stuck in Romans chapter 7. How do we get to Romans chapter 8? Well, it's the love of Jesus Christ. Considering His love for us. He did not plant a lily among thorns to let it die. To, be, to, to let it be choked out. He planted that lily there because she is His love. He loves His lily. He loves His church. He loves His sons and His daughters. Each one of them. He gave His life. He shed His blood for every single one of His elect people. He loves you, dear believer. And He planted you among the thorns specifically with the intention of preserving you because He loves you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He will not not allow you to be choked out. The, The thorns may surround you and because of your negligence, you're struggling for survival. But look to Him. He will deliver you from Romans 7 and bring you into Romans 8 through the contemplation of His love. 
that love that is stronger than death, stronger than hell, stronger than the grave, stronger than sin, stronger than the world, the flesh, and the devil combined to, to the 10th the power. Okay, His love stronger than death. Contemplate it. Think upon it. He loved me. He gave Himself for me. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall we not, He not with Him freely give us all things? If God has saved you and planted you in this world as a lily among thorns, do you think He's going to let you die? He sent His Son who loved you and gave Himself for you. Do you think Jesus is going to let you die? Do you think He's going to allow that besetting sin to snuff the life right out of you? You have to think. You have to reason. You have to follow the logic. If God has done all this up to this point from all eternity, He's going to finish the job. He's going to deliver you from your fill-in-the-blank. The sin that easily entangles you. Uh, the, the, the affliction that produces bitterness in your life. Fill in the blank. He will deliver you. Not talking about physical healing, okay? Talking about spiritual healing. The healing of your soul. The strengthening of your faith. The sanctification of your thoughts, your words, your actions. He will give you deliverance from the thorns in your life. By His love. And through the contemplation of His love. We're told in verse 34, Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Tell me, how is the lily going to be uprooted if Jesus Christ, the victorious Son of God, is enthroned in heaven showcasing His finished work before the Father and interceding every day of your life that you would have the grace that you need, that you would have all that you need for life and godliness, that that you would hear the sermon that confronts your spiritual laziness and wake up and start doing what you need to be doing, whatever. But Jesus is interceding for the grace that you need every single day. And the Scriptures are clear that God gives Jesus what He asks for. When He intercedes for His people, we could, we could pivot to, what is it, Psalm 20. Uh, May you have all that you desire. That's a promise to the King, the Messianic King. In Psalm 20, verse 4, May He grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. This is the will of God in Christ, your sanctification. Jesus is interceding for that. And if you don't believe that His intercession is enough to equip you to overcome that sin, to overcome that doubt, to overcome that temptation, to overcome that bitterness that's just pickling your soul in resentment, if you don't believe that, then, then, then shut your Bible and go home. You don't believe the Gospel. But if you believe the Gospel... That's what you're believing. That's included. Jesus has not only died to take away the guilt of your sin, He's in heaven interceding so that the lily would flourish among the thorns. Even if the thorns aren't taken away, the lily can survive, even thrive. 
through the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, persecution, uh, distress, famine, nakedness. Who shall separate us? Nothing. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. He loves us. He loves us with an everlasting love. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If He loved you and gave up His life for you while you were yet a sinner, how much more, if you will, following the logic here, how much more is He going to love you now? He saved you. Now you're in a relationship with Him. Um, If anything, if anything, He loves you more in more ways because now you've been brought to His side as His bride and beloved one. But the point is, He doesn't change. His love cannot change change his intercession cannot fail if it did it would disrupt the entire space-time continuum and the world would cease to exist okay you're going to persevere you're going to thrive and you need to believe that and receive his love yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? If you believe that, You should not be intimidated by the world. You should not be intimidated by fleshly desires and temptations and lusts. You should not be intimidated by Satan's devices because you have the love of God in Christ and therefore you have won and you are winning and you are yet to conquer. You have to to cling to these things and not allow yourself to be weighed down with unbelief and fear and trembling in these matters. So we'll leave it there, but my friends, as a a lily among thorns, you need to take personal responsibility. There are things in your life and in your family that you just need to take stock of them and do them. Just do it. Just look at your vows, look at your covenant of baptism, and just make it a priority to use the means of grace to grow, to grow strong. And in the midst of that, humble yourself in your vulnerability and cling to the rock-solid, infinite strength and power of Jesus Christ. And say with Paul, I can do all things through Him who gives me the strength. Let's pray. Gracious God, we humble ourselves before You, confessing our unbelief, confessing that we have put You in a box and minimized and marginalized the full extent of Your Gospel and of Your promises and of the love of Christ which gives us the victory. We pray that You would increase our faith, that You would open our eyes to see Your faithfulness, Your character, your promises, to see the finished work of Christ and His triumph as a reality in our lives, to be able to look at uh, the giants in the land as it were, to be able to look at those fortified cities in Canaan, and, and rather than being overwhelmed with fear and trembling at the greatness and stature of these soldiers and of these armies, 
We pray that by faith we would be enabled to see our great and awesome and mighty God and that you and our eyes would become big and everything else would become small. That we might be strengthened with might in the inner man by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.